Our primary text will be Matthew 27. I'll give you the various scriptures we go through. But the message is entitled Passion Week Friday. This is part three. We are continuing our series on Passion Week. This is the 13th year. Taking each event during this last week of the life of Jesus Christ in their order. Matthew, again, will continue to be our primary text, supplemented by Mark, Luke, and John when needed. Again, this is the third message of the sixth day of Passion Week Friday. Three events in the first message. Last year, we looked at the next three events, which were Jesus before Pilate, Jesus before Herod, and Jesus sentenced by Pilate. So we want to take the next three events of Friday, the sixth day of Passion Week, which consists of the following. First, Jesus mocked by the soldiers. Matthew 27, verse 27 to 30. And we'll go 31. And then Jesus betrayed, or betrayer, commits suicide. In Matthew 27, verse 2 to 10. And then Jesus led to be crucified in Matthew 27, 31 to 33. So let's begin here with Jesus mocked by the soldiers. Matthew 27, verse 27 down to 31 uh, C. As they break up and from the commas in that. The cross references we'll go through will be Mark 15, 16 through 20 and John 19. 1 through 3, and then we'll add 4 through 16. But I'll mark these out for you so you can see it. And um, you'll see how they all fall together. Notice first here in Matthew 27, verse 27. um, And we'll be down to 31. But in 27, Jesus, having been tried by Pilate, is turned over to the Roman soldiers now. Matthew tells us, Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into his praetorium and gathered the whole garrison about him. Matthew alone tells us they were the soldiers of the governor. Mark simply tells us the soldiers led him away in Mark fifteen sixteen, And John says, So then Pilate took Jesus and scourged him, 39 lashes, as you know, with the cat of nine tails, bone, metal, 13 on the right side, 13 on the left side, 13 over the shoulders, tearing ligaments, muscle, tissue, lungs exposed at times. Very few people would survive such a lashing. Matthew, Mark, and John all identify the place of the praetorium. In John um, 19, then uh, Mark 15, 16, and uh, John 18, 28, 33 and 99, the praetorium, the praetorium. Now, Mark calls it the hall of praetorium in Mark 15, 16. This was, as you know, the headquarters of the Roman military camp, the official residence of the governor. He was in uh, Caesarea on the Mediterranean, beautiful place. Some of you have been there. And then on the holidays, he would move in because of the population that was all up to millions because of the pilgrimage. And there was always high probability of violence and riots and all that. And so he would uh, go there with the, uh, uh, with the Roman soldiers to guard over that. Um, the location is debatable. Some think it was at Herod's palace in the southwest part of the city near the present Jaffa Gate. But probably it was the Antonius Fortress, the main barracks of the 
north corner, northwest corner of the temple area. If you remember when Paul was accused of bringing Gentiles into the court, um, there the centurions came out from there at the Antonius Fortress. There's a corner right looking down on the temple. Now Matthew tells us they gathered the whole garrison around him, notice. Mark says they called together the whole garrison. So again, that's important that you put the synoptics together. And then John sometimes gives information so you get a whole picture of it. The word garrison, cohort, is about 600 men. Um, how many were present, we don't know. Whether all were there or half were there, we don't know. These soldiers were Pilate's own soldiers. His own private guard, experts in their cruel game of humiliation and torture. Some of you were with us in Israel. We went on the ground where they play their games and they have drawings on the ground. You put water on it, you can see. And they just uh, mock and torture and put these uh, prisoners that are going to be crucified through horrible ordeals before they go to the cross. Matthew next describes, notice in verse 28 down to 31, the mocking of Jesus. Matthew depicts how they humiliated Jesus and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him, the color of royalty, verse 28. Only Matthew tells us they stripped Jesus. Now remember at this time, his flesh on his back is ripped open, bloody. Mark and John tells us they clothed him with purple from shellfish or mussels. Mark fifteen seventeen and John nineteen two. Is there a contradiction? No. If you follow the three synoptics as well as John, you realize that they have been mocking Jesus and they have arrayed him with various robes at different times. It was a long process of mockery. Matthew next tells us how they ridiculed Jesus when they had twisted a crown of of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed on his right hand. Verse 29. The painful crown of thorns jamming it down by about four or five inches. They're, They're huge thorns. Putting it down into his head. Mocking them. Jesus um, being completely innocent again. um, Understands that he cannot confess to any crime with the lashes as before. And here the mockery painful crowns upon him. But without knowing. They were crowning the one who would die to redeem them, but also the earth, the very thorns, the curse that came upon the, on this earth due to the fall of sin. Prior to sin, there was no thorns. The very creation, Romans 8.22 says, Jesus will, it, 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 it groans for the coming of Christ to be redeemed. And Jesus will redeem the earth. When he comes back to the millennial kingdom, it'll be transformed like in the garden. Without knowing that. The reed in his hand represents the scepter of a king, again poking fun at the sovereign authority and power of Jesus as he stood emaciated, not recognized as a man, Isaiah says, Isaiah fifty-two fourteen. 
Notice then in 29, Matthew tells us how they insulted Jesus as they acted out as if they were his loyal subjects. And they bowed the knee before him and mocked him saying, Hail, King of the Jews. These are salty soldiers. These are men who are not moved by anything. The Roman soldiers were feared. Matthew alone says they bowed the knee before him. Mark says they began to salute Jesus. Mocking him. Mark and John both confirmed the words, Hail, King of the Jews. Mark 15, 18 and John 19, verse 3. Matthew then says they dishonored and disrespected Jesus as well as treating him with violence. In verse 30 of Matthew, they insulted Jesus, then they spat on him. This is the lowest thing you could do to anybody. We even get mad as Americans, somebody spits, but, but we don't understand what spitting is. You go, you're in Mexico and you spit on the ground like that in front of a person or somewhere in the country. Boy, that is the, 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 the ultimate insult. You are dirt. They physically abused Jesus. They took the reed and they struck him on the head. Mark tells us they spat on Jesus again after each one of those soldiers, it's in the perfect tense, struck Jesus on the head, bowing the knee for a second time and they worshipped him. Mark alone tells us about the worship, Mark fifteen nineteen. So each one of them smack him on the reed on the head. That, that crown of thorns goes in. John asked that they struck him with their hands. John 19, 3. Matthew then describes the end of the mocking of Jesus here in 31. He says, and when they had mocked him, they took the robe off of him. Mark confirms they mocked Jesus, telling us specifically they took off the purple robe. Distinct from the scarlet of Matthew. Mark 15, 20. So that's why it's important to put them side by side. Get yourself a parallel Bible. It gives you all the three synoptics. And there are some that put John also and they fill in. He tells us they put his own clothes on him. On his scourged, beaten, bloody body. There in 31. Now John provides for us supplementary material at this point during the mockery of Jesus in John 19, verse 4, down to 16. Let me run through that. In verse 4 of John 19, John tells us, Pilate then went out again and said to them, Behold, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no fault in him. Pilate presented Jesus mocking their 
and, and the ridiculous charges of sedition. Then Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said to them, behold the man. He's no threat. He's no king. Wow. Not satisfied, the Jews reacted violently at this. Therefore, when the chief priest, in verse 6 of John 19, and officers saw him, they cried out, saying, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, You take him and crucify him, for I find no fault in him. This is the third time Pilate says Jesus was innocent. This portion of John happens after they left the praetorium and, and they brought him to Pilate to present him again. The other gospels don't give us this. Notice then in verse 7 of John 19, the Jews gave the reason for wanting Jesus dead. The Jews answered him, we have a law. And according to our law, we are, he ought to die because he made himself son of God, literally. No article. God. Now, I was listening to Hannity the other day over his uh, Killing Jesus movie. And he says, yeah, well, Jesus came to just put things together in the temple, just a lot of the social uh, injustices. No. He says, that's why they crucified him. That's not why they crucified him. I know God will use movies like that, but they're horrible. I only saw one minute. It was enough. But I know God will use to save people. But it's a tweaked version of the gospel that Hannity has written. Absolutely. I heard Greg Laurie commended it. Really? I wonder what Bible he's reading. Nobody wants to call anything straight today. Got a bunch of girly men behind the pulpits of America. Innocent. Why did they crucify him? Because he said, I'm God. That's why they crucified him. Pilate became very concerned. Look at verse 8 and 9 of 19 of John. Therefore, when Pilate heard... That saying, he said, he was the more afraid and went again into the praetorium and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. Pilate attempted to intimidate Jesus, but Jesus rebukes Pilate. Verse 10, and he says, then Pilate said to him, are you not speaking to me? Do you not know that I have power to crucify you and power to release you? Jesus answered, you could have no power at all against me unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, the one, Caiaphas, who delivered me to you has the greater sin. Verse 10 and 11. Whoa. What a rebuke. Who's on trial here? <laughs> Who has the real authority? Who's really in control? Hmm. 
verse 12 of John 19, Pilate did not want to crucify Jesus, but he feared more the threats of the Jews. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, saying, If you let this man go, you are not Caesar's friend. Whoever makes himself a king speaks against Caesar. Now remember, they already had stuff on Pilate. He's ready to be recalled, you know. He doesn't need anything else. And so in his desperation and in his human wisdom, because he's so backed up against the wall... Pilate took the chance on giving the Jews a choice between Jesus and the murderer, Barabbas, the criminal. When Pilate therefore heard that saying, verse 13 and 14, he brought Jesus out and sat down, uh, sat in the judgment seat in the place that is called the pavement, but in the, in the Hebrew, Gabbatha, now, it was the preparation day of the Passover about the sixth hour. That's Roman time, six in the morning. For the Jew, that would be um, uh, the first hour starts and then the third hour would be nine. So this is Roman time. And he said to the Jews, Behold your king. Behold the man. Behold your king. He wrote on there, Jesus, King of the Jews. They got upset. Right not that he's King of the Jews. Say, he said he's King of the Jews. What I have written, I have written in your face. You got me in a corner? I'm going to stick it to you too. Wow. Pilate was shocked at their choice of verse 15 and 16. But they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. Then he delivered him to them to be crucified. They chose Barabbas. Wow. Mockery is defined as making fun of someone or something in a cruel way. Derisive ridicule. To degrade, belittle, and insult. The gravity of this mockery is a sin of high crime because Jesus was sinless. The mocking of Jesus is nothing new though. Jesus has been mocked about his virgin birth, declaring he's merely a man like any other. Laughed at the thought that he, she would be a virgin who conceived. Jesus has been mocked for proclaiming that he alone can forgive sin and get men and women into heaven. Jesus has been mocked about his fulfilled prophecies, saying they're just generalities and coincidences that, that these prophecies come to pass. Yet he fulfilled over 300 in his first coming. What would make you think he's not going to fulfill the rest? Great detail prophecies. Just taking one prophecy with eight figures of the chance of probabilities, like filling the state of Texas with silver dollars, three, three, three and a half feet high, Marking one of them with an X, stirring them all up with a giant blender and getting a blind man to go out there and pick the one. That's only eight. With eight factors. Eight prophecies. 
John 5, 26 to 27, as far as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself and has given to him authority to execute judgment also because he is the Son of Man, God incarnate, the last Adam. Wow. There was a time when Jesus was revered and honored in America, but now he's openly mocked. The public school system does not allow Jesus to be mentioned or taught by anyone and ridiculed by many of the teachers. The universities have no tolerance at all for Jesus or Christianity. Yet the major universities were all Christian at their founding, and the pagans took them over. Christians started hospitals, the pagans took them over. <laughs> Pagans don't start anything. They take things over. Many politicians, by not defending our Constitution, directly deny the Judeo-Christian roots of our founding fathers. Our very president, Barack Obama, has mocked Christianity and the Bible on many occasions. Go on YouTube. Punch his name in. Mockery of Christianity. Ridicule. Yet he calls himself a Christian. Hmm. Jesus said, But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Mark 9.42 That's for... Our president, for senators, for congressmen, for teachers, for the common man. No exception. Jesus is not intimidated. He's not worried. And he certainly is not biting his nails. The world is choosing to reject Jesus over the intimidation and politicizing of Islam. No one dares to say anything against Muhammad. No one dares to say the majority of terrorism is Islamic in nature. Everyone is indoctrinated into political correctness, including much of the Christian church in America today. Listen to 1 John 4, 3. And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and is now already in the world. How clear the gospel is. Jesus was mocked by the soldiers. Next comes Jesus' betrayer, committed suicide. This is found in Matthew 27, verse 2 to 10. Matthew is the only one that covers this. We get a footnote in Acts that we'll see in chapter 1. Matthew 27, 2 through 10 says, Matthew, again, he says, Matthew gives us an approximate timeline. And when they had bound him, they led him away and delivered him to Pontius Pilate, the governor. This was when they took Jesus from the Sanhedrin 
to Pilate. Remember, Jesus had a religious trial and political trial. Each had three faces. You had Annas, Caiaphas, Sanhedrin. You had Pilate, Herod, and Pilate. He's been up since the day before. He's been interrogated, beaten, scourged. Verse 3, Judas at this time had second thoughts about his treacherous betrayal and attempted to return the money. Then Judas, his betrayer, seeing that he had been condemned, was remorseful and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders in verse 3 there. The word remorseful means regret for the consequences, not genuine repentance of the evil sin. 30 pieces of silver was the price of a gorged slave, Exodus 21, 32. The very words between Judas and the religious men are recorded for us, saying, I have sinned by betraying, by betraying innocent blood. And they said to him, what is that to us? You see to it. You see, he's confessing to the wrong people. He's only sad about the consequences. Regret. The guys who were party to help him do this, it's on you, man. Wow. The horrible, deceptive remedy of Judas is stated. Verse 5. Then he threw down the piece of silver in the temple and departed and went and hung himself. Jesus said, the Son of Man indeed goes just as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. Matthew twenty six twenty four. The persons who enticed and facilitated Judas to betray Jesus could care less about his guilt and regret. They were satisfied in their part of the sin. They got what they wanted from him. But now look down on Judas for his part in the sin. But the chief priest took the silver pieces and said, It is not lawful to put them into this treasury because they are the price of blood. They're part of it, but now they exalt themselves above Judas. You dog what you did. Wow. This was all in fulfillment of prophecy. Verse 7 through 10. And they consulted together and they brought him, um, uh, brought with them the potter's field to bury strangers. And therefore that field was, has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet saying, And they took the 30 pieces of silver, the value of him who was pierced, the gore slave, whom they of the children of Israel pierced and gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. Jeremiah mentions the field and the potter. But Zechariah has the prophecy. Jeremiah 18, 1 and 2, 32, 7 through 9, 36, 37 through 39, and then Zechariah 11, 12 through 13. Because the divisions of the Hebrew Bible were different. 
Now, this does not mean that God predestined Judas to betray Jesus. It only means that God knew that he would and prophesied and predicted it as so. If God forced Judas to betray Jesus by predestination according to Calvinist doctrine, never giving Judas a choice, then God is the true culprit of the sin of Judas. And if it is true that he forced him predetermined without a choice, then how can God judge Judas at the white throne judgment justly? He would be violating every attribute of his. He cannot be good. He cannot be kind. He cannot be just. He cannot be holy. Are you following the train of thought? So when you think of predestination, think of it in parallels, as I told Wednesday morning study. You have two parallel lines. The top one is the things that God has prophesied that will happen. And by the way, the word decree only appears one time in the Old Testament. So much for the many decrees. (laughs) Prophecies, first coming, second coming. The Antichrist, the temple, those things will happen absolutely. Underneath this parallel line, you have the people. These things will happen absolutely. Who the people are is within freedom of choice and God knows who they are. They're not forced to act. Okay? Predestination always deals with events, not with people. People have a free will. God just knows what it will be. Otherwise, you have to force God to force the hand of someone. And therefore, God is really the ultimate culprit for the sin. And Calvinists say that, that God decreed the fall. Therefore, that makes God the author of sin. And they say that to you in their own writings. So I'm not accusing them. They, They accuse themselves. Now, Luke provides for us supplementary information about Judas Iscariot. And we find that in Acts chapter 1, verse 18 through 19. Just two verses. Judas apparently hung himself in some high elevation and then the rope must have broken. There's speculation. Many people say one thing, another, but that, that, that's the gist of it. Now this man purchased a field with the wages of iniquity and falling headlong, He burst open in the middle and all his guts, entrails, gushed out. Verse 18. There is no contradiction between Matthew and Luke here in Acts, but more detail. When the rope broke, is not stated. Or that it was even a rope, but if he hung himself, you have to assume and implies that there was a rope. Or a belt or something. Whether it broke right after because of his weight, whether it broke afterwards because he hung there for a while and maybe he began to be bloated and so when he hit the ground, like a water balloon, that's irrelevant. The fact is that both of these details are not contradictory. They give you a full picture. Judah's sin of betrayal was known to all In relationship to the field. Verse 19 of Acts 1 says. And it became known to all. 
those dwelling in Jerusalem, so that field is called in their own language, Akeldama, that is field of blood. And that's all the information we have about Judas Iscariot. And it happened in this interval right between us as Jesus is being scourged and led out to the cross. Can't know exactly, but somewhere in there. Now, every person in their life before Christ has committed things they regret and are mournful about for doing them. The check of conscience was ignored and we committed acts and deeds. The immediate guilt and shame hit us with the horrible awareness that what we did could not be undone. So tears and sorrow came because of the consequences. For some, the guilt and regretful shame corrected their sinful act. But I believe this is the exception, not the rule. Most go deeper into sin after they've tasted of sin. Some live with the guilt and shame affecting all their life and at times do commit suicide because regret cannot atone for your sins. Only repentance in the name of Jesus Christ can atone and forgive you of your sins. When there is no repentance and forgiveness of our sins, these shameful sins are carried and brought on into life and into marriage, at times unknown to one's mate until after the marriage, resulting in feelings of betrayal, being lied to, and as a result, a devastation of trust takes place in the marriage. Questioning what else have they lied to me about? Hurting the marriage. At times destroying their mate and the marriage. Not everybody. Because we never know how someone's going to respond. When we, the most personal and intimate with another one in marriage. And God has created us that way. People lie about many things. Lie about their height, their weight. They lie about their sexual purity. They lie about having been married. They lie about having children with other men or women or other marriages. They lie about abortions, about STDs. Listen to me, if you're going to get married, these are things that your husband and wife need to be informed about. You're a fool. You set up your marriage for destruction. Especially if you're not a non-believer. Because all you need now is you want vengeance. And, and sin nature is bad news. When this happens with believers, 
The guilty party should confess the complete truth about the lie. That's the only way to clear up a lie. To tell the truth. Why they lied and not complicate the problem by more lies or half lies. Because it just makes it worse. Trust has to be regained. And your partner needs to understand and be fully confident that that is truth. So there needs to be a brokenness and honesty. Proverbs 19.5 says, A false witness will not go unpunished, and he who speaks lies will not escape. Numbers 32.23 says, And be sure your sin will find you out. Then Ephesians 4.32 says, And be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ forgave you. But that comes with honest confession and honest repentance. I should not require of you any less than God requires of me. For me to have fellowship with God, meaningful fellowship, I must confess my sin, acknowledge my sin, and tell the truth about my sin. Do you think God requires any less of us when we lie to one another or deceive one another? If we continue to do the same, how is it that we believe we have fellowship with God or one another? We don't. I'm often asked about the sin of suicide by Christians. There are many who speak very freely, asserting and assuring that a Christian committing suicide will be in heaven. First, there is not one scripture to support that confident answer. Second, there are only five occasions where suicide appears in the entire Bible. Judas is one of them. You have Saul who fell on his own sword in 1 Samuel 31.4. You have his armor bearer who also did that in 1 Samuel 31.5. You have Ahithophel, the counselor of David, who when his counsel was not accepted, he went home, put his house in order, and hung himself in 2 Samuel 17.23. And then Zimri, a pagan king, who burned the king's house down upon himself with fire, and he died in 1 Kings 16, 18. Five occasions. Now, do you feel comfortable joining believers with these men? One of them's a pagan king. I don't. Suicide is a pagan practice, a non Christian practice, not a Christian practice. In fact, that's one of the reasons we got saved because our life was so messed up and we knew it. And now our hope is in Christ Jesus because he's cleansed us, forgiven us, right? And so we have great hope. We don't take our lives. We're to die daily for Jesus. It's a pagan practice. God gives life and takes it away when our time comes. 
God is sufficient for all our life problems, as terrible as they may be, as terrible as they have been in past history to many Christians, tortured, burned at the stake, imprisoned. God has been sufficient. God says we are not to murder. Commandments, Exodus 20, 13, Deuteronomy 5, 17. If you take your life, you've just committed murder. You can't say, well, I'll take my life and I'll repent right away. Really? Wow. Going to war in defense of your family and country is not murder. God sent his own people out to war. Simple. The Ten Commandments is murder, not killing in defense and in protection. Let's make it clear. When a soldier lays down his life, let's say by calling artillery in on himself to destroy the enemy, that is not suicide. That's heroism. He lays down his life for his fellow man. Let's understand that clearly. Jesus' betrayer committed suicide. Notice thirdly, Jesus led to be crucified. Matthew 27 the end of 31 down to 34. And also, Mark will cross-reference that. But I want to begin with Luke 23, 26 to 32, because Luke provides for us the longest account of this section, known as the Via Dolorosa, meaning the road of pain. If your name is Dolores, your name means pains. In verse 26 of Luke 23, Luke gives us the account of Jesus being too weak to bear his own cross. The Roman soldier, they chose here a bystander from North Africa in the crowd to bear his cross. Now as they led him away, they laid hold of a certain man, Simon, a Cyrenian, who was coming from the country, and on him they laid the cross that he might bear it after Jesus. You can imagine Jesus weak, losing blood, being up a day and a half, beaten. Matthew and Mark state Jesus was led out to be crucified, Matthew twenty seven thirty one and Mark fifteen twenty. John simply says, So they led Jesus, or they took look took Jesus and they led him away. And he bearing his cross in John 19, 16, and 17. Matthew tells us this took place as they came out. Matthew 27, 32. So they describe it a little different ways. Both Matthew and Mark confirm the man to be Simon Cyrenian. They compel them to bear the cross of Jesus. Matthew 27, 32. Mark 15, 15 through 21. Mark gives us added details about Simon that he was just passing by at the time. 
and identified him as the father of Alexander and Rufus in Mark 21, 15:21. So he's just walking by. The crowds are looking on. He's just walking by. They grab him. Luke tells us women in the crowds were grieving for Jesus. Verse 27 of Luke 23. And a great multitude of the people following him and a woman who also mourned, lamented him. Luke then gives us the words of Jesus to the women. Listen, verse 28. But Jesus, turning to them, said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. Reason being that Jesus had pronounced doom and judgment over the city of Jerusalem that would come in 70 A.D. Mark, Matthew 24, Luke 21, Mark 13. Luke then records the utter horror of that day in verse 29 and 30. For indeed the days are coming in which they will say, Blessed are the barren wounds that never bore and breasts that never nurse. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us and to the hills cover us. That's how horrible they would rather die than to be alive. Luke then gives us the words of Jesus about the greatest judgment on them. For if they do these things in the green wood, what will be done in the dry? In other words, if they have done this to me, innocent, God, and they, they, they meet out to me such a horrible punishment, what do you think will happen in the judgment coming to Jerusalem in 70 AD that when it deserves it? Whoa. Luke informs us two men were crucified with Jesus in verse 32. They were also two other criminals led with him to be put to death. Now, Matthew, Mark, and John record the arrival at the place of crucifixion. So there's a shorter. Matthew twenty-seven thirty-three says, And when they had come to a place called Golgotha, or Golgotha, that is to say, the place of a skull. And some of you have been there with us this last year. And as we go out to Damascus Gate, you look up, you can see the skull. Underneath is an Arab bus depot. To the left is, is uh, Gordon's Calvary, the tomb that is believed to have been of Jesus, or at least a good example of one would be like that. Mark confirms Golgotha, adding, which is translated place of a skull in Mark fifteen twenty two. John also confirms this record, went out to a place called the place of the skull, which is called in Hebrew, Golgotha, John nineteen seventeen. But Luke is the only one that does not use the name Golgotha or Golgotha. He's the only one, but he describes the place of the skull. Matthew twenty seven thirty four tells us they gave him sour. Wine mingled with gall to drink, but when he had tasted it, he did not drink. Mark confirms this 
but describes it different. Then they gave him wine, mingled with myrrh to drink, but he did not take it. This was a potion offered to those who were going to die under crucifixion. Kind of a little anesthesia to take some of the pain away, though very, very little. The cross was the most horrible way to die. It was invented by the uh, um, uh, Persians, uh, refined by the Carthaginians, and then handed over to Rome. And it just, it was, you could last days on there. You ultimately ended up suffocating because you couldn't pull yourself up any longer. The French reformer Theodore Biza made a famous retort to King Henry of Navarre. Quote, Sire, it is truly the lot of the church of God for which I speak to endure blows and not to strike them. But may it please you to remember that it is an anvil which has worn out many hammers. <laughs> the majority of the world is still crucifying Jesus, but not always in a violent and torturous way as we've examined. Those who claim Jesus is a prophet, a good man, a great teacher, but not God, are accusing Jesus of lying. They're calling him a liar. They do not agree or believe that the gospel warns sinners about their need to repent from their sins before they die or they will perish. That was the heart of the message of Jesus. Repent for the kingdom of God's at hand. The world today believes Christians are a problem to society, being too narrow in this diverse culture. Too narrow to have access to God in heaven because we insist that it's only in the name of Jesus. Today in America, Christians are being targeted, bullied, intimidated, and flat out persecuted for their faith through the universities, the political legal legislation, and the liberal media, denying and contradicting our founding fathers who believed in God. You would have to remove every, every monument in Washington, D.C. You would have to destroy our Federalist Papers, our Bill of Rights, our Constitution. Listen to Judges 2.10. When all that generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation arose after them who did not know the Lord, nor the work which he had done for Israel. That is a direct scripture against America. A generation that did not know God, the Lord. The judgment coming to this world is far greater than that which happened to Jerusalem in 70 AD, ladies and gentlemen. Therefore, by Washington's definition, I am a terrorist because I believe in the destruction of this world. New definitions are going on. 
The world is moving to a one-world mindset. The Bible's prophesied about Daniel 2, chapter 7, chapter 9, to mention a few. Israel's back in the land and has been after 2,000 years, May 1948. The entire world's against Israel, especially our nation. Russia will attack Israel. And God will destroy 5-6 that army. Ezekiel 38 and 39. The minute that happens, at the same time simultaneously, the church will be raptured. That will begin the seven-year tribulation. The Antichrist will appear as a conquering ruler, all-wise, he will make a covenant with Israel, or Israel will make a covenant with him, Daniel 9, 27. The first three and a half years will be seeming peace and solutions to everything. Everybody will have to receive a mark on the right hand of their forehead. They cannot buy, they cannot sell without that. You refuse it, you have to lose your head. Decapitation. Interesting what's going on with Islam. The Antichrist will enter the temple that he will build. Called the abomination of desolation, Matthew 24, 15, 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 12. He will declare himself God and Israel will flee to the wilderness and God will provide for her in the city of Petra, Isaiah 16, Revelation 12. And as the church's rapture prior to the tribulation, that tribulation will bring in judgments such as has never been upon this godless world. That Jesus said it would be better for men to die than to live in those days. Matthew 24, Mark 13, Luke 21. If you don't know Jesus Christ, I would plead that you open your heart to him and repent. And get ready for the Lord's coming. If you're not for Jesus, you're against him. You cannot be neutral. It's impossible. If you repent and accept Jesus, you are saying he did not deserve the cross. That he died in your place. You agree with the gospel. If you do not repent, then you're saying Jesus deserved to be crucified. So the question is, who do you say Jesus is? Jesus was disciples at Caesarea Philippi. And again, some of you were there with us up there in the north by the Golan Heights. He said to his disciples, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answers, says, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Matthew 16, 15 through 16. There's only one answer. You can cheat in the book, open it up, and you can write the right answer. I would suggest that you use the book. That you escape the wrath to come.
Jesus was led to be crucified. The judgment not fall upon us. God has not appointed us to wrath, but to salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 5, 9, 1 Thessalonians 5, 9. First, uh, Revelation 3, 10, he will keep from the hour that will come upon the world, the seven-year tribulation. Tribulation, great tribulation. I used to teach about the end times. After 9-11, I started living the end times. Everything's come together. And so these are the next three events of Friday, the sixth day of Passion Week. This is the 13th year. We've got a few to go. (laughs) Jesus, mocked by the soldiers. Jesus, betrayer, committed suicide. Jesus, led to be crucified. What a privilege to have God's revelation that you may know exactly what took place, that you may know exactly what God's will is, that you know exactly what you can do about your sin, you know exactly the only way to get to heaven, and you know exactly what will happen when you repent, that you become a child of God. Who do you say Jesus is? Lord, thank you for your grace and love, your goodness, Lord. Father, we just thank you. We worship you. We thank you for your grace over our life. Help us to be graceful to each other, honorable. Lord, that we would just reach out to those who are so lost, our friends, our loved ones. We pray for this week more than ever, Lord, that you would just anoint your servants who will preach your word. Tomorrow on Good Friday, on Easter Sunday. And then many would just repent, Lord, and come into the kingdom. As you're praying, if if you're here tonight, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, God has brought you here to be saved, to repent. Maybe you're over the internet. Maybe you don't know Jesus Christ. The Bible says if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth, you shall be saved. You will cast your sins as far as east as the west, burying them in the deepest ocean, cast them behind his back, and he will never mention them anymore. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Nothing. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Man, what an incredible gift God gave us. If you want to accept him, this is your prayer of repentance, and he's going to do exactly that for you, by grace through faith. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me, Lord, for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Fill me with your spirit. I accept you as my Lord and Savior. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.